Few things are scarier than being attacked by a shark. Australian Mick Fanning was in a professional surfing competition, which was being broadcast live around the world. Viewers watched as a shark approached him, and he was quickly rescued by nearby safety crews. The only damage was the leash that connected him to his surfboard had been chewed through. In 1963, Rodney Fox was competing in a spearfishing tournament. A great white shark attacked and bit him around his midsection, puncturing his diaphragm, crushing his ribcage, and leaving many of his organs exposed. He survived with surgery and around 400 stitches. One summer on the Jersey Shore, five shark attacks happened in 10 days, resulting in four deaths. That period is often thought to be the inspiration for the classic movie, Jaws. As scary as it sounds, the reality is that shark attacks are quite rare. In fact, your odds of being attacked by a shark are around 1 in 11 million. Of course, that's not much comfort if you're one of the unlucky people to actually experience a violent attack by a shark. Just ask Brooke. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. Do you have a favorite shark? I would say my favorite shark would be a whale shark. Uh, I've seen a lot of videos, people diving with them, and they just look really incredible and majestic. Um, I would put them up there. I never heard of a whale shark. It sounds like it would be really big. Yes, but they're actually filter feeders. So they're catching little prey. So they are a lot, a little safer to be around. <laughs> you seem to be fairly intelligent about this species and probably other species. And that's part of why you were in the Caribbean. What were you doing down there? Because you live in Texas. 
Yes. I'm originally born and raised in Texas. Uh, I was in the Caribbean, though, and on the island of St. Kitts and Nevis for schooling, actually. I attend a veterinary school down there to attain a doctorate in veterinary medicine. And I was going into uh, my seventh semester of didactic learning down there. Uh, we were just on our Christmas break uh, around the time of my accident. So you were part of a swim group. These are all people that are also studying in veterinary school? Yes, uh, different uh, members of the community, but usually all connected through our schooling. It could be significant others or students themselves or part of the faculty or just other members of the community that we all have a love of swimming. And so we all try to gather at the same time each week, depending on schedules, just to get out into the oceans and swim for health and for fun. For people that aren't familiar St. Kitts and Nevis are islands in the chain of islands in the Caribbean. And so on the west side of St. Kitts is the Caribbean Ocean, and on the east side is the Atlantic Ocean. That's correct. It's really beautiful. And at the ends of the island, you can see where these two bodies of water meet, and it's really cool. But yes, yeah, so on the west side, you have just all that Caribbean Sea there where it's Beautiful, beautiful, clear water, a lot more calm. On that east side is the Atlantic Ocean, where it is more choppy, a little cooler, but good for surfing. All right. Well, let's talk about what happened that day. Your day started, I understand, around 8.45 a.m., and you got together with this group of people. How many people were in the group? And just take us through what happened. We had a group of seven meeting up to go on this kind of fun end of break swim that we were building up to as it was a longer distance than we usually swam unless we were in training mode for one of the uh, longer length competition swims that they have on the island just for fun. We had to do a lot of planning because this wasn't a typical route for the club to do. Others as individuals have done them for fun because this goes out to a little island that is not inhabited by people. It's small, so it just has animals and great reefs around it. So a really great place to just watch the local wildlife and be able to get out there and really experience it without it being touched by humans. Sounds like a perfect destination for a field trip for a school of veterinarian students. Yes, uh, we're all we're so excited to go out there. Some had been out before. And we have friends that have been out before and described it to us. So this was supposed to be like a really fun trip, just something new and exciting to try and everyone get to see something new, but also a fun challenge because it was a more daunting distance. But also because of that aspect, we were stressing to others that if you weren't ready for that, then we were building up to it with shorter distances and kind of working up to that, but still saying that if there's any doubt in your mind, play it safe. We had those that were actually in kayaks with us because they were still a little unsure and we want to make sure everyone's getting there and coming back fine since we are swimming into open water and not necessarily following a shoreline this time since we're going to a 
new location and it was on a different side in the Atlantic Ocean. It was a different kind of swim that we were doing this day. In talking about the distance, we're talking about from where you started to the goal island was about a mile and a half, which is, I mean, that's a long way to swim. So, it, and, and I understand you had three swimmers and four kayakers. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We had uh, three persons, including myself, that we were going to be in the water and we were swimming the whole distance. And then we had four persons that we had kayaks for and they were split up between two single kayaks and one double. This was a distance that altogether it could have been more than three miles just because when you're swimming the ocean, you don't have a lane line to follow. So you kind of veer back and forth a little. And we've seen some pretty funny um, trackings with watches, but it promised to be at least like three miles round trip total, just depending on how off course we got. And you chose to swim out in the open water of the Atlantic rather than in the more protected waters of the Caribbean. Why did you choose that route that day? So this island that we were reaching, it is more on the western side of St. Kitts and Nevis. And to swim to it, it would be easier from the Atlantic side to start on that side because there were some beaches that extended a little close to it before the beaches ran out and it was just cliff edges. And on the eastern side, the beaches were a little further back. And so we'd have to start swimming further back and then have to swim around to the Atlantic side. So we'd also be fighting against that change in the waters where there's a lot of pickup in current and there's it's going to be a lot more choppy. So it, it would exhaust us faster. So we were starting on the Atlantic side for that reason. But we also knew that we didn't want to do the swim at all if the Atlantic side was too rough because it already had that reputation of just being choppy, more churned up. So we were already watching out and keeping an eye on the weather. And if the swells were going to be too big, if it was going to be too windy, we were going to just cancel it. And everyone was aware of this, that it was still kind of up in the air. And we would make the call that morning, that day, once we finally got out there and saw it with our own eyes and could tell like, okay, it's not too bad. It looks like we'll be able to make it through and we won't get completely exhausted just by just trying to get out past this pier. Can you talk about what you were wearing for this swim? For our usual swims, I go out with, I have a sports uh, bikini, so it ties on and I can tighten it. And I wear a rash guard with long sleeves because the sun down there is a whole other level. <laughs> for this swim in particular, we had swim buoys for all of the swimmers in the water. And these are just like kind of big beams that you inflate so that they float above the water and they follow you. They're attached to you, usually around the waist, so that you can keep an eye on others where we usually have brightly colored caps and we were made sure like told everyone not to wear blue. Excuse me for that. Uh, we were just telling people not to wear blue. So it'd be a lot easier to pick them out, but the buoys are bigger and brighter. So they help as well. Usual just swim gear, uh, cap and goggles. And then just my usual jewelry that I have on. 
it seems like when you're swimming, your head is mostly down. You're facing the water. How do you keep track of going in the right direction? That's a really good question. And this is something to kind of figure out with open water swimming. It's not something you really have to deal with when you're in a pool. What I learned to do myself was so I wouldn't hurt my neck over the duration is that when I wanted to look at my surroundings out of the water, I would use that time to do breaststroke instead of just like, you know, the crawl, the freestyle where I'm moving forward. But so with the breaststroke, I'm able to really pick myself out of the water and I can scan like 180 degrees so I can keep an eye on where I'm headed and where everyone else is. So I do those when I'm wanting to look around out of the water. Yeah, it seems like if you weren't paying attention, it would be pretty easy to get separated from the rest of the group if you're not keeping an eye on it. Yeah, it is very easy in the open water to just kind of veer off. And we've certainly had a lot of uh, stories like that. We have a couple swimmers that we joke about that it's their go-to. They just like to add a lot more distance, just to get more exercise. And it's kind of why uh, my professor nicknamed me like the sheepdog of the group because I kind of learned to, I would typically towards the back of the group anyway for speed. But so I would always just make sure to corral people in if they were drifting a little too far out from the route. And that's kind of how this thing started, right? You popped your head up and you see that some other swimmers and kayaks have gathered sort of in one place and you started going their direction. Yes. So we were, by my estimations, about a mile from shore where we started. Everyone is headed they're trying to stick to like the east side of the island that we're headed to, which is a good idea. Just trying to stay on that side of it because that's where we wanted to enter on where the current was a little less weak. So I was sticking a little more outside of that to make sure everyone did stay in that direction. There is one point where we're getting pretty close and you're thinking, oh, I'll be there in the next five minutes. I'll be there in the next five minutes. And then you're like, it keep, the island keeps getting bigger, but I don't feel like I'm getting closer. So I think it, People were wanting to kind of talk it out and uh, just take a little break. So I saw that the swimmers had gathered up with the kayakers when I was doing one of my scans. So since they were just a little to the right of me, I just was going to change my direction a little bit to go directly towards them instead of on a intersecting path to meet up with them later. Since they were gathered, then I was going to I just turned right to head towards them. And it was like one, two strokes in when I felt the pressure on my leg just latch on and just it felt like like I knew I if I couldn't even bother kicking whatever was holding on to me, it was very strong and I wouldn't be able to kick. There there's no way. You could just tell from the strength of the pressure. I did not think it was a shark at all. A shark was actually the furthest thing from my mind. Before I turned around, I was literally going through my head like, why Why would I feel pressure like this? And thinking, well, the pressure feels like as if something would be biting me. But there's no dogs in the ocean. I'm not giving shots right now. Nothing would be wanting to bite me. So then my brain was thinking, can an octopus hold on this hard? Are they that strong that their grip could feel like this? 
Or could it be the bite of something like a sea turtle? Because they're curious and they want to bite everything to see what it tastes like uh, if they can eat it. (laughs) I honestly was surprised to turn around and see a shark. It was the biggest surprise. I had been scanning around me on the surface. I had been looking below me in the water, but I hadn't been looking behind me, which is where I assume it came from. And I was told afterwards that that's how they do like to attack is either from below or from behind uh, so they can make it like an easier hunt just a sneak attack especially on what they assume is a wounded animal, which is what my swimming looks like, apparently. Um, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. But yeah, it it honestly, in the time that the shark held me, it was an out-of-body surreal experience. I remember that I had to tell myself to do something because I was thinking, oh, wow, this is, so weird i'm watching this happen to someone and it's that must be what's happening because this is so improbable to be happening to me i must be watching someone else's story unfold i had to tell myself if you don't do anything if you act like this isn't happening right now there's the story's going to end there's not going to be any more story even though it still felt like it wasn't really happening, that it was like a dream almost, I had to be like, do something. (laughs) Like for most animal attacks, you're going to go for sensitive areas. And in my mind, that was first go for like the muzzle area, the nose. Uh, Those are typically sensitive areas. When I turned around, I try to hit it with my right hand with a fist and the nose and it just felt like nothing i'm sure i i don't even think it registered because nothing changed didn't seem like the shark cared at all like it even noticed it i mean i could tell moving through the water like it wasn't it didn't have a lot of speed uh, behind it anyway and just all that resistance but that meant I had to change tactics because I was expecting that to work. And I was like, oh no, now what? Now I got to think of something else. And I have this huge eye in front of me. So I just jam my thumb into its eye. And then that's when it finally let go. It actually seemed deterred. It shook its head. It swam away. Then I was able to get above water. It still felt surreal at that point, I think, until I looked down at my leg just to survey kind of what had happened. And I saw the best way to just say it, it was just shredded. It just looked like just like shredded chicken thigh or something it was not recognizable as a leg anymore so that i think set me back into real world i immediately was like okay this is a problem so i'm yelling out shark 
shark, help me, help me. And then just trying to tread water because as I am yelling, I just feel the energy draining out of me. I'm, I can already feel like I'm losing air and it's a lot harder. It feels so much harder just to yell out, help me. And it ends up just like dying to like a whisper. Thankfully though, my friends were close and they reached me so fast. It, it seemed like seconds. It was actually uh, my friend that was in a kayak that upon hearing me crying about a shark, jumped into the water to save me. This is Samantha. Samantha, the hero. One of the heroes in the story anyway. Yes. Every, everybody there, They, I would not be here without them. I completely owe my life to them. Everyone wants to talk to me about the experience because I got attacked by the shark, but it was only a couple of seconds of it. Only a couple seconds out of this long, well, seeming to me long time period. When this happened, how far were you from the group? Just going off of my estimation, it looked like they were maybe just like 20 feet away. Like I could see them pretty good. They weren't too super far away, but it wouldn't be easy for me to just swim over and catch up to them real quick. And they said it looked like our professor was already swimming toward me before he even heard the rest of the story either. He was just already swimming. They weren't even sure. He knew I yelled shark, but he was just already headed over to help. It seemed like they reached me about the same time. Samantha, since she was in a kayak, had a, a life jacket on. So she had taken her life jacket off when she reached me to put it around me. Because like I said, I was just losing energy, just losing air so quickly. So I was so exhausted. So she put the life jacket around me just to help me stay afloat. And once they had gotten the kayak over to me that he was now in, my professor, he had grabbed my wrist. And SJ was holding onto me like from my waist. And so they pulled me onto the kayak, just kind of uh, pulling me across the front of it just to have me strewn across it. So I'm out of the water a little bit more, my head at least. It's a kayak, so they're not very big. So we couldn't get all of me out of the water, but they were at least helping me so that it wasn't so much of a struggle to stay afloat and there wasn't risk of me falling in under the water so that I could keep my head up and still breathe. But it was very difficult at that time. It just no breath was satisfying enough. I was not able to get enough oxygen and my body was just constantly screaming at me for it. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1 
And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com what code 25 what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. During this time, I could hear them like talking about things, um, people yelling out different commands, uh, what they're going to do or what others should do. We had two cell phones with reception to call out and very lucky that we were still able to get reception out in the water, but we weren't very far, but it was still very lucky. We had one cell phone uh, that the girls were calling to the emergency response teams, the just police department to start with, and then trying to connect it over with Coast Guard to have someone come out and get us because it was still a tricky area to get to. The shore was a mile away and what was close to us was just the rocky cliffside. So it wasn't really any safe place to get out. And this island that we're getting to that we're pretty close to, there's still the current to fight against. And now we have four people on a kayak weighing it down. So we tried making our way there. He was really trying, but it was just a lot of weight on a kayak. And it was just enough just to kind of stay in the same spot. So we were easy to find. So we weren't moving around and they'd be able to find us well enough. 
So while I'm laid across this uh, kayak, I'm really just laying there, just trying to breathe. Can't even really keep my eyes open. I have my professor that's on the one side of the kayak that he's holding onto my wrist, making sure I don't slip back in the other way. And then I have Samantha that she's behind me trying to support me up and hold me onto the kayak so I'm not slipping back in. And she also had to get my buoy off, my swim buoy that I was wearing around my waist. They thought to use that as a tourniquet. So with that waistband, she was able to put that around my thigh and just crank it on as tight as possible to work as a tourniquet because I had already lost so much blood initially. And while it's hard to see in the ocean after it's just kind of trailing out because it just diffuses so fast, we knew there was, of course, still blood loss. So they got that tourniquet on. And she did it perfectly. And that's honestly why I'm still here is their quick quick thinking and actions. Was there any concern about when, when you lose that much blood, you know, sharks smell blood from a long ways away. Were there other sharks around or did that initial attacking shark leave the area or was he still there? Or? I was so afraid of what else would come around because of the blood. Because when that shark had let go of me and I got up to the surface, like it just billowed up around me. It looked like one of those movies. It it really did seem like a movie and that would also kind of made it seem surreal too while that was still happening. Because as quickly as it was there, it was gone. And Samantha telling me later, everyone telling their sides of the story and everybody putting it together and piecing together the different things that uh, we didn't realize what was happening at the time until we talked to the others. She said she saw it and by the next wave it was gone. With that amount of blood to be gone that quickly, I was very afraid of how far it was spreading and what it was attracting. Luckily, We only had the one shark to contend with. I had thought I had injured it enough that it wasn't going to come back because I was very sensitive and I saw it swim away. But I was told later I, I was too incapacitated to realize this. But while we were in the water and I was already across the kayak, the tiger shark did come back and it was circling the group. We were all together at this time. So it was circling around the group and they were aware of it. It was going like right under the kayaks. The girls were able to see it right there. They're so smart. These beautiful, amazing people. They were turning the kayak to keep it in between me and the shark. Because obviously I'm going to be the easiest to pick off and I'm attracting it so they just knew we're going to keep turning this kayak whichever direction we need to so that we have the full length of it between it and me so they were doing that for they said like 10 minutes before it finally kind of just gave up and swam away but I think we are incredibly lucky that was the only one that came around at that time 
Um, I know they are territorial, so maybe that's what gave us the luck is that nobody else wanted to go up against this shark in its own territory. I don't know exactly, but I'm surprised really nothing else came around. I'm picturing this right now. You, you've got four people on this kayak. You, I mean, the kayak is too weighted down to really make any forward progress. That's got to be pretty discouraging. Like, how are we ever going to get out of this mess? I could hear the fear in their voices talking about what options were and what was happening and what wasn't happening. Key's so strong. She's so strong. And I know she was trying her hardest, but she was saying that it didn't seem like we were making any forward progress. She wasn't sure we were going to be able to get to the island to get out of the water there. Our goal just to get out of the water and get blood out of the water. But yeah, it was a lot. That's that's four adults on one kayak and and this petite little girl that, I mean, she's pure muscle, but it was so difficult. And the later in the day we got, the more the wind picked up. And so the waves did pick up a little bit, especially getting around towards this island where all these currents are converging. It was just a very, very difficult task for anyone without the weight of three extra adults on a kayak. I, at the time, did not realize how much time had passed. I was just concentrating on getting air and staying conscious. I was setting just kind of goals for myself to hold on and be able to communicate to others if I was asked questions by emergency personnel. Want to be able to tell them my blood type, answer any medical questions. While I'm just laying there, just I have my eyes closed maybe 90% of the time, just trying to breathe. I think it's only been like 10 minutes. And then everyone's just kind of set in the routine now of either calling, trying to cheer the others on, encourage the others to keep going. I hear Samantha say that she thinks that she's getting a little tired that she feels like she's starting to cramp up and she's not sure how much longer she'll be able to support me on this boat. And so our professor though, he's just being really encouraging saying, well, it'll be much longer. She'll be fine. And he's got me. And just like a minute later, he's like, Oh no, I, I think I'm cramping up now too. We were already against the ropes to begin with, but it, of course, was not good to hear these words right now. And nobody wants to stop. Nobody wants to give up. Thankfully, those were just the magic words, I think, because just like a minute later, we're hearing the hum of the boats. So then it just takes a few more minutes and then we can see them and they're there. One of our usual Swimmers with us is our professor's wife, uh, Kathleen. She didn't join that day in this swim, but she did uh, wait on the beach for a little bit just to watch us as long as she could. And she was going to hang around that area just in case there were any phone calls that were made. She was actually one of the other persons that was called right away so that she could also call persons as she knows plenty of people to get the phone tree rolling. 
Were you feeling pain from your leg during this time? I'm very thankful to adrenaline that I did not feel pain. It's weird to describe, but it was just that I was aware that my leg was there, but I couldn't truly feel everything or else I'd be feeling the pain. So it really just felt like a floating entity that was attached to my body. And I was just aware of it kind of like swaying in the current. I just knew it was there, but I really just didn't feel the pain. And I mean, I'm very fortunate for that because like the few times where I was like moved from like to the boat or when I was moved into like stretchers or gurneys and things like that, like those jostling movements, I think because I had broken bones in my legs, I think those movements, it was enough to kind of break through the adrenaline and I felt that pain. And that was the worst pain I felt in my life. It did have me cry out. Luckily, I only felt that at those breakout moments when I was like being moved. And I'm honestly surprised that it lasted as long as it did, but very lucky that I didn't have to feel it the whole time. I didn't even know until I woke up the next day that I'd injured my hand. I was talking to Key about it later. I was like, yeah, I had I had no idea my hand was also bleeding. And so that was blood in the water. And she was like, oh, yeah, I, I could see it. But that was the least year problem. So it was fine. I was like, fair point. <laughs> I had no idea it hurt my hand at first. And it was honestly the biggest mystery for us. We're like, how? How, how did that happen? And it was only actually through doing these interviews and talking with an actual shark expert <laughs> that he was he told me, well, that's why you're not supposed to punch them in the nose is because you're likely to have your hand end up in their mouth. And those teeth are going to get you. Was the rescue boat big enough to hold everybody? I'm not entirely sure about how big the boat was. I just kind of knew from what I'd seen the boats that we've used before for like our swims that uh, the Coast Guard has for just maintaining order in the water. I hadn't really opened my eyes much at all. So I understand your condition. You're not doing a head count, making sure everybody's okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I've just kind of assumed I know which boat they'd use, but actually when they first arrived to us, I was the only one that was taken initially in that boat to get me to the hospital quickly. And it was a, another one of the coast guard boats that picked up everyone else after they got me out of there. Their plan was literally to just grab me and go and get me to the hospital. How it worked out was we were actually closer to Nevis, even though in the water we were still pretty much right by the tail end of St. Kitts. This is still down at the peninsula end where if there's any buildings, it's personal housing or maybe some bars and grills. But the hospital that they have on St. Kitts would be all the way around the peninsula and up down to the main body of the island. So it was actually further away to travel back there. So they took me to Nevis and took me to the hospital there. So the only part of the journey that I lost consciousness for was the transportation to the hospital. 
when I woke up at the hospital because uh, I'm in a gurney and they're trying to wheel me through and get me through the hallways to the insight, everyone's trying to find veins to put IVs in me. This is when I'm asking for oxygen because now I have all these medical personnel around me. I'm in a hospital. So I'm calling out. I'm asking for an oxygen tank. And once they get me to this room, they're able to provide that for me. They are able to get an oxygen mask on me. And it made such a huge difference. It was so painful to breathe before. And this helped so much. They took you into surgery pretty quickly. Right. I mean, obviously, this is a medical emergency. Mm -hmm. Were they talking about saving your leg at that point? There's a lot of moving around and a lot of talking. I could catch certain phrases here and there. I was mostly hearing the nurses at first talking about IVs and what medications to start. I was trying to call out where I could to answer questions. But I do at one point hear a male voice and I hear him saying the bones are broken and we're going to need to go in for surgery and kind of giving out instructions to others. And so this oxygen mask that I have on me, it's switched out for a different mask and that's when I smell the anesthetic. And so I know, okay, I'm going under for surgery now now is when they're going to really start digging into things and they're cutting off uh my clothing so i think one of the last words i heard was the same male voice and i hear the words uh amputate well i know he's talking about me and i know i saw my own leg and it was a complete mess but i was still like oh dang do we have to but of course Whatever the doctor says goes. Uh, How do you prepare yourself for that? I mean, obviously you were about to be put under and not really know what was going on. But man, to, that was kind of your last thought before you got put to sleep, right? Yes, it was uh, one of like the last things I'd heard uh, before the anesthesia took me under. Yeah, I don't know why. I thought that like my leg would be okay. I saw how shredded it was. We were in the water for so long. There was so much blood loss, but I heard the word amputate and I was like, Oh dang it. Like, do we have to? But I knew like, yeah, it is that bad. You already knew this. Like you, you saw it. So that is a logical <laughs> route to follow is yeah, there's going to be an amputation. I didn't have too long to think about it because, of course, the anesthesia, the gas was already on me. So it was only a couple of seconds before I was under anesthesia. So I didn't have too long to think about it, but I wasn't afraid. I was okay with it because I was like, yeah, that's a medical term. That's a thing that is done. That's a totally plausible route. It's normal. It happens. So. I wasn't too afraid because I knew like, yeah, that tracks logically. I was still aware that it was the most likely option when I was waking up from anesthesia, but I didn't want to confirm it until I was completely conscious and aware and able to deal with it. And they had the same thoughts as well. 
they didn't want anybody to tell me if I didn't already know. They didn't want anybody to tell me until I was fully awakened and out of that kind of loopy state that you're in afterwards. So they were given instructions like, hey, just don't say anything about it. We need to talk to her, but we want to make sure that she's in a more awake state. So when my friends came in afterwards and were just talking and gabbing, like I have it in the back of my head, but I know I also don't want to look in. I don't want to confirm until like I can really process it because you have these phantom sensations and I'm like, yeah, I can still feel my toes. Yeah, I I still feel like things are there, but I didn't want to look down and like really lift up the bed sheet to check until it was a better time. It was the next morning when I was waking up. I was a little worried to check because I could feel like my toes. So I was like, well, maybe there's a chance it's still there. But I knew in my head that, well, it was be pretty wild if it was able to still be there and you feel it and you're just feeling the toes and no pain or anything. And you did hear the word amputate. So it would be pretty far fetched if it was still there. But I mean, yeah, anything's possible. So I was kind of taking it slow to reveal it to myself. Even I didn't want to just like rip the bed sheets back and it be something completely jarring. I, honestly just looked at the bed sheets and said, oh, okay, I can follow my right leg down there. And that's where the sheets are popped up a little bit because my toes are sticking up. And if I just look to the left that the sheets are completely flat and they're completely flat until you get up near my knee around my thigh area. I actually didn't even really look at my leg. I don't even think that whole first day until a nurse came to look at it. I was also kind of scared to check too. So I just wanted to do it in a way that would confirm it, but not be so. Not so shocking. Not so shocking. Yes. Yeah. That evening, they transferred me to the hospital in St. Kitts to stay there in their care overnight as they had an ICU department and they would have nurses there to be there around the clock. So I was taken on ambulance and across the ferry in this ambulance to St. Kitts, stayed in that hospital for the night and the next morning. and. I was able to have visitors, but just one at a time. This was still during like COVID restrictions. So they had their own uh, mandates in place. So it was just one visitor at a time. But I think that was also maybe just a restriction just for patients in the ICU as well, just so there's not too much happening with them when they're going through a lot. So I stayed there in St. Kitts for just like the next day and while we we're waiting on plans to solidify for a plane to get me back to the States for further treatment and follow up. 
it was that afternoon, the next day, I was being boarded onto a medical flight, private jet. It's an actual company where they have trained paramedics and EMTs that they're accompanying you on this plane uh, back to whatever hospital you're going to. And the whole crew was amazing. They were so sweet and so funny on this really tragic plane flight out of this paradise island. And typically, just because of where it's located, most flights would go to like Miami for their hospitals there. But since I'm from the Houston area and that's where my family is, just kind of made more sense just to add on that little extra time to take me to Houston so that I could receive treatment there. So I stayed in inpatient rehabilitation for just a few weeks. Once I was released back to stay in families' homes, then my rehabilitation was just done as an outpatient. So I would just travel to one of their sites to go for appointments. This is where I actually got to first get into the pool there. While I was still staying at the inpatient uh, facility, my incision line hadn't healed up enough for me to get in the water. So we were still waiting on that to close up completely. So it was actually a while until I was able to get back in the water. And I really wanted to try. I mean, I just missed the water. I've always swam. So I was just missing the water uh, anyways and didn't think there'd be any problems with just getting into a pool. I mean, I was pretty sure there would be a problem going back to beaches. And so I knew I was going to work up to that, but I was not expecting a pool to be a problem, especially one that it's just a little square. It has stairs, lifts, platforms, all the safety devices in the world around it and in it because it's for those that are recuperating. So the safest amount of water, just a step above a puddle that I could be in. My first time getting in, I broke down. I did. My physical therapist had to turn into my (laughs) mental health professional, but she's been amazing. What made it harder was the fact that I was caught off guard and that it did affect me as much as it did because I wasn't expecting that to happen in a pool. I thought, yeah, of course, it makes sense if this happens in the ocean. But I was just thinking I was going to get in the pool here and I was going to see how I could float and swim now. So for it to catch me off guard like that, it really scared me that well, if I can't even do this here, is there any hope of me getting back into an ocean again? Will I even be able to just sit on a beach again? It was really hard, but ultimately it was very helpful too. I think it turned out to be a cathartic experience. I had to actually confront those feelings that I was glossing over and thinking, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm I'm healing up, I'm progressing in physical therapy, my body's healing, then that means that I'm okay. That's the only thing that's been affected is just my physical being and 
nothing else is wrong. It's just, I need to learn to walk again and that's it. And of course that was definitely not the case. So this excursion into the pool was the first instance of me actually confronting and dealing with what had happened. I would have thought that the medical professionals having dealt with a case like yours, you know, at some point in the past or in their training, they would have been instructed to, to kind of warn you ahead of time that, you know, you're getting back in the water. The water is where this bad thing happened. So kind of be prepared for the unexpected. But they, they didn't give you any heads up like that at all. I think because I was so vocal about wanting to get in the water and I was so sure about it, I was misleading them. And that ultimately, it is the patient that makes the decisions. If I say I want to do this, then they're going to go along with it. If I say I don't want to do it, then they're not going to do it. And I think because I felt so confident in it, then they were okay with it. But I know they did have trepidations because when I did talk about it, they did have someone from like the psychologist department talk to me about like if I was to get back in the water, what do I think it would be like, how soon and what kind of water. So they did kind of talk to me a little bit about it before, but I think I just pushed for it. So they were open to it. All my therapists have been so great and so wonderful. I know that they are still looking out for me, but these events are so rare. Like one of my therapists was so surprised to find out there's actually a code for it in their database system uh, when putting in like their notes and things. I don't know that they have actually met another shark attack survivor or anything. So that's true. It is pretty rare. Yeah. So I think it's kind of a learning experience for all of us. <laughs> I love seeing how you dealt with this, you know, in as part of your recovery, you kind of have a sense of dark humor. Because, I mean, I've seen pictures of, I, well, you, I saw you wrote one time, you have to be careful with COVID because you're on your last leg. Ha ha. You've got t-shirts that have shark pictures that say, hello, chum, and bite me, stuff like that. Is that kind of how you deal with trauma in general? My therapist would say yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Um, I've always kind of had comedy in my back pocket. I never really thought of it as a coping mechanism, honestly, <laughs> until, well, maybe the last few years, but definitely more so now. And and, t and seeing others, like other amputees and other shark attack survivors, and that they are aware. They're like, yeah, we, we know that we're making jokes about it, but heck, that's what helps me because we kind of do get a lot of guff from like family members usually because I know it's hard for them to hear something that was so hard for them to process themselves and they can only process from a distance to then hear the person that it actually happened to like make a joke about it make it sound so trivial and they're like oh, i almost lost you how can you make a joke about that so i do understand like like i know it's really hard for like my boyfriend like he's barely making jokes about it like 
And whenever I make jokes, he's just like, oh, I can't believe you said that. But so many people in, a, in these communities agree that it's really what gets you through so much of it. Because if you can't laugh at it, what else are you supposed to do? It is a part of the healing process. It might not be everyone's process, and that's fine. It's kind of where I was already situated, and it's just helped me from there. Your sister Paige has been a big help in your recovery. She's kind of another hero in this story, too. Yes, but I want to tell a funny story about her first. Because (laughs) when... When all these phone calls were first being made out, there was, of course, minimal information. So my family's just getting first a phone call of, Brooke has been attacked by a shark. She's in the hospital. We'll tell you more later. And that's it. (laughs) So uh, I have family members calling around, calling others to spread the news of, hey, be aware. Information's coming through. Have phones ready and everything like that. When Paige found out, she hears this shark bite taking the hospital and it's just like, oh, okay. So just like just got grabbed, uh, just needs a couple stitches and she'll be out later. So she wanted to be presentable for when we FaceTimed later and talked on the phone or talked however we did. And so she got out this T-shirt that we have from, um, I think, like elementary school with a shark on it. And she wanted to wear that for the first time that she spoke to me afterwards about this. And then later when, like, more information came in, they're like, hey, she's in the hospital because she has to get her leg amputated. She was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I ever thought about wearing this. I need to burn this shirt. Like, I can't do this. I can, oh my gosh. And just like, so freaked out about it. And that's kind of, I think everyone else too, because like hearing shark attack, you're like, oh yeah, what? That doesn't happen. That, But she's fine. So, and then not realizing the severity of the situation until later. So then they're like, oh no, I can't believe I like cracked joke now. But I've told everyone, hey, I was making jokes right out of anesthesia you're fine you can throw anything at me i probably already heard it i probably already thought it up myself but i will still enjoy it so she she knows me though she was worried afterwards but then later like she knows that like i was making jokes about it so when i arrived in houston i didn't i didn't have anything but just like one bag that samantha had put together for me of things she had collected from my apartment so i didn't have a lot of like winter gear or anything so Paige packed a bag for me of clothes and items to have while i was staying in the hospitals and rehab and she included that shark t-shirt and that's the shark t-shirt i wore to my therapy sessions and my therapists were just like you're going to have people worried about you. <laughs> you might get a visit later today. Cause like not a lot of people in here know your story, but we know. <laughs> and some might be worried about you. <laughs> this girl's in complete denial. She needs help. Yeah. Right? Are you walking again now? Yes, I am. I don't know. The doctors said I was young and healthy. I don't know where they got that from, but I've had a pretty good recovery so far. And rehab, we're just working on building back muscle that I lost just from being out of commission and just working on being able to 
function in my limited capacity until that was able to be rectified because not everyone can get a prosthesis right away and you don't know how long it's going to take. You also just have to learn how to use it anyway. So it first just started with just building up different muscles that weren't really used much before, but would be now. I was in a wheelchair to start with and then was able to use like walker and crutches. But I do have a prosthesis now and I'm able to walk with it. I'm at the point where I don't need any assisting devices while I'm using it. So I can use my hands now and get around pretty well. I wasn't very graceful to start with before the accident. So I do stumble here and there, but that's nobody's fault but my own. Can't dance just yet, but couldn't do that before. So that's not too much of a worry. (laughs) It's becoming more normal, more natural. I do feel more confident in it now. So I can get around And it's just now about kind of building up my stamina and strength and practicing whatever obstacles I might come across in different terrains. I do have plans to return to St. Kitts uh, and finish schooling there. I only had just uh, one semester didactic learning to finish there before I would move uh, stateside to do a year of clinical rotations through another teaching hospital. I really wanted to return and finish up where I can at uh, my school in St. Kitts. I know the island. I love it there. I know the faculty administration there. And they're going to be pretty excited to see you come back, too. I'd like to think so. Yeah. No, yeah, they are. I've had so many wonderful people reaching out to me, checking in on me. I mean, people that I would have considered friends before this even. Yeah, just the support that I've gotten from the school has been amazing. I do want to return there to finish up my didactic learning there. And we are trying to get me back so I can start classes in this upcoming spring semester that would start in January. So I'd be back just a year later from the accident. Right. So you'd be going back January of 2022. And this literally just happened as we record this in the fall of 2021. This happened in January of this year. So... That's, I think that's a pretty good recovery. Yeah, and I might have been a little overconfident before, though, and I was tr- thinking, like, oh, I could be back next semester. Like, modern medicine's amazing. Look how fast I'm healing. And then I hit my roadblocks, and I was like, you know, there, there's other things to this healing process. I was trying to, for a time, go back earlier. I was trying to go back in the summer, even. And then I was thinking, oh, okay, well, summer didn't work out. So maybe the fall. And then, well, the world's still burning with pandemic. But also there's, there's always still some refinement to be made. Now that I've progressed and given myself more time, I am seeing like, you know what, it, it's okay to take more time to heal, especially when you need it. So, but I do feel confident about going back in the spring and think I will be ready for that journey then. Well, I know this whole thing has been obviously very expensive. And one of the things that your sister Paige did early on is to set up a GoFundMe. And uh, I know a lot of people have contributed to that already. 
but I know the expenses are ongoing as well. We'll have a link to your GoFundMe page in the show notes for this episode. So if anyone feels like they would like to contribute to that, everyone is welcome to do so. One final question. Are you planning to go swim in the ocean again? I am planning on it. I'm also planning to take a stuffed animal that I can hold on to um, and a couple friends to talk to because now I know it's not as easy as it once was. I've seen how strong everyone else is and they've gotten back in the water after seeing something so horrific and they push me to be better and do better. So I want to get back out in the water and I'm saying I will get back out into the water, out into the ocean. I have a lot of support behind me to do that. I want to actually try going and doing scuba diving still, just learning how to do that. But I know it might take a little bit longer though this time. You can see pictures of Brooke along with some of her dark humor t-shirts at whatwasthatlike.com slash 93. I want to let you know there are a couple of places you can find the podcast that you might not know about. First, there's actually a What Was That Like YouTube channel that has every episode. Now, you won't see any videos of me interviewing the guests. I'm not Joe Rogan, but you can listen to them there if you want to. And if you go there and just click the Videos tab, it's kind of cool to see the graphic image for each episode there all on one page. That's at whatwasthatlike.com slash YouTube. And the other place is Reddit. Lots and lots of people are on Reddit, and if you've never discovered it, it's a pretty amazing place for user-submitted content. And if you're not careful, you might suddenly realize it's 3 in the morning and you're still scrolling through and reading things. The What Was That Like subreddit is at reddit.com slash r slash what was that like. And we close out this episode with a segment that's become pretty popular, the listener story. If you have a story that you think people might find interesting, drop me an email and tell me about it. Scott at whatwasthatlike.com. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Back in 2015, I was 16 years old. And on a weekend, my dad decided to take me as a treat to go see the new Terminator movie. And everything was fine until about halfway through the movie after a pretty big car chase scene. At the beginning of this scene, there was a jump scare, and we didn't know it at the time, but this had actually caused an elderly woman in the audience to have a heart attack. And when this happened, the lights in the theater came on and the movie paused. And this caused everybody to kind of just stop. But we only had a second to really realize what was happening before we heard her husband start yelling for help. And he said that she wasn't responding. She had just sat there and had stopped moving. He said that she had gripped his hand really hard and then just lost consciousness. And so my dad was the only one in the theater that actually had CPR experience. So he went down there and helped her husband take her and carry her to the bottom row of chairs. And once they did this, my dad just started going to work. He started doing chest compressions. He started doing mouth-to-mouth. And while he was doing this, we realized that she still wasn't responding. Uh, 
And my dad actually got me to go out and get the attendants to recall the ambulance and get a proper ETA on how long it would be for them to get out to us. So while this was happening, my dad was back in the theater still doing mouth-to-mouth and chest compressions. Later, he told me that he was doing them so forcefully that he could actually feel her ribs crack, which is actually a pretty normal thing to happen in CPR. But she still wasn't responding after a certain amount of time. We had noticed she had actually urinated herself, and she had very glazy eyes. And my dad was pretty sure at that point that we had lost her. Um, at this point, the ambulance showed up and I was able to direct the people to the theater where my dad was still working on her and they were able to go to work. They had a whole machine that did the chest compressions for us and we were only there for a short bit longer before they took her out on a gurney and the last thing that my dad did was give his business card to the husband and tell him to call us when she recovered but we never got that call so we're pretty sure that she passed away that day and it was a very unfortunate event the scariest thing though to me is that no one else in the theater did anything at all and that is something that i think could easily be fixed if people just took the time to educate themselves and learn how to take a simple cpr class You know, if that had been my dad that day that actually had the heart attack, he probably would be dead because there was no one there that knew anything besides him. So I just say educate yourselves and be sure to have a little bit of medical knowledge. So in instances like that, if it is your loved one, you can do the things that you need to do to help give them a fighting chance.